Well, before we study the Word of God together, would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father, we thank you again for our time this morning, this opportunity to be together as your people. Lord, we ask for your help with us this morning as we read your Word, as we study your Word, as we think about it, meditate upon it, that our hearts might be challenged by it, changed by it, that we might be better uh, equipped to live for you today uh, than we were yesterday, Lord, and that we would together as a corporate body and as an individual believer be a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world around us. Help us do that for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I was thinking this morning as we were singing together that isn't it nice in a time like we are in right now in our world to just have a sense of normalcy? I mean, to be together like this, to be in this place, and just to have something normal. I mean, as unnormal as our week is going to be, and as unnormal as the elders have had to kind of take on some of these tasks and make some adjustments, at least we're here together, and this is normal, worshiping God as believers together. And so uh, a little normalcy goes a long way uh, for a lot of people, and especially we as Christians. So I'll just ask you this morning to take your Bibles with me and turn in them uh, to Romans chapter 13, the normal place that we have been. We want to return there. We are uh, going back to this very important place that the Apostle Paul has given to us in his letter to the believers in Rome, and he has transitioned us from all that God has done for us first 11 chapters, the way that, to the way that we are to live because of this new salvation that we, the Christian and only the Christian, that we have in light of the mercy and grace of God that He has shown us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we have seen that in Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2. We've been hearing about how it is that we can and that we must, as Christians, put into practice all of the doctrinal teaching that we learned in the first 11 chapters. Anything and everything that we have learned by way of doctrine from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11 is being put into practice as we transitioned into chapter 12 and verse 1, particularly the living living out of our relationship to people in general, not just to Christians, but to people in general. And we have now then transitioned to chapter 13, where we looked at in the first seven verses what our relationship is to be to the governing authorities, really to authority in general per se, but particularly to the governing authorities that we have over us. And we have thought through the implications of all of that as we live out our day-to-day lives. And you remember that we emphasize that the ultimate authority is the Word of God. For you and I as Christians, that is our ultimate authority. So that when it comes to the authority of the governing authorities over us, we don't have to be confused as to what specific rules you and I are to follow. 
There's no sense in which any of us as individual Christians need to be confused about what it is we are to do when the governing authorities say this is what you are to do. We are to follow all the rules of authority as long as they do not violate the clear and rightly divided ultimate authority, which is the Word of God. So we have to understand the Word of God. We have to rightly divide the Word of God so that we are not confused as to the truth of what God is commanding of us because He is the ultimate authority. And when the rules around us do not violate that, we have to follow. God is, as it said in Romans chapter 13 and verse 1, God is the source of all authority. He is the source. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. Why? Because there is no authority except from God. Right? Any authority that is in place has ultimately been placed there by the sovereign hand of God. Doesn't matter how wicked the person is, doesn't matter how right the person is, doesn't matter if they agree with us or we agree with them or we agree with the rules that they lay out. The fact of the matter is they have been placed there by a sovereign God and therefore we learned to resist that established authority, to resist them when it isn't violating the clear and rightly divided word of God. To resist that is to resist God. It is to resist God. And to be in resistance against God is a very bad position to be in. Chapter 13 and verse 2 clearly tells us, if you oppose God, those who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. That is not a good place for anybody to be in. Resistance against God is something that none of the world ever consciously thinks about, but we as Christians must think about that. And yet, oftentimes, even as Christians, we may be doing that all the time. We may be doing that all the time. In fact, notice what chapter 8 says, Owe nothing to anyone except love for one another. Seems rather interesting, doesn't it? It's interesting that Paul would be highlighting that reality, owe nothing to anyone, when he has just said in verse 7, render to all what is due. Seems like an odd transition, and yet there is a connection with what he has just said, and I believe it is fairly clear. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples on the night before his death. Jesus said in John 13, verse 34 and 35, A new commandment I give you to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another by this. By what? By this. By the love of one another. By that reality. By that aspect. By that carrying out in your life. All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so, over the past several weeks, we have been talking about adorning the gospel. 
We've been talking about living our Christian lives, about adorning the gospel of Jesus Christ, living in such a way that others will see Christ in us. That what they see in us would be attractive for them to Christ. That our lives would be an attraction for them to Jesus Christ. That is what is meant by adorning the gospel. That is what is meant when we say we are to live as gospel Christians. And an essential element to adorning the gospel is just what Jesus said in John 13, to love one another, to love one another. That is what Paul says that we owe to others in verse 8. Notice what he says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. In other words, we are in debt to every person. Ever think of your life like that? You carry around your life, you know you have debts in your life, monetary debts, other things, but do you ever realize you're in debt to every person? As a Christian, you're in debt to them concerning love. You say, well, pastor, I don't don't understand what you're saying. What do you mean by all that? Well, let me show you. Let me show you. I I mentioned it already, but look at verse 7, because Paul says it in verse 7, render to all what is due them. In other words, this is the outworking. Verse 7 is the outworking of our understanding of God being the source of all authority. Verse 1, God is the source of authority. There is no authority except that which God puts in place. So we render to all what is due. We give them exactly what is due them as placed there by God for them. And then in verse 8, he says what seems to be a contradiction. In verse 8, he says, owe nothing to anyone. Render to all what is due, but owe nothing to anyone. And the word, however, in verse 7 for Render to all what is due. The word due there, by the way, is the same root word as that in verse 8 for owe. Owe. And so Paul's making a connection between the two. He says we are to render what is owed. Render what is owed. And yet we owe nothing to anyone except love for one another. And to love one another is to show that we are disciples of Christ, John 13. In other words, he's saying this, listen, I've been talking to you about what you do owe to others and that you must never hold that back. You do owe things to other people. You are to render to all what you owe, tax to tax, custom to custom, fear to fear, honor to honor. You're never to hold that back if it is theirs. When it comes to the governing authorities, you pay your taxes. When it comes to the governing authorities, you offer custom. You fear, rightly so, because God's the one whom you are truly fearing. If it's theirs, let them have it from you. Don't don't fight that. Just let them have what is theirs, whatever it is. And then, in verse 8, he says, ensure... Ensure, in other words, ensure you meet your obligations. Never owe anything to anyone. 
Ensure you meet your obligations, and one obligation that you will never be free of, one obligation you will owe all the time, is a debt of love. We are indebted to all people as Christians. We are indebted to all people with the gospel. This is the idea that Paul has in mind. Now, I just want to make a quick side note here because... Oftentimes you will read in commentaries, many commentaries on the book of Romans, you get to chapter 13 and verse 8, and they will say in them, they'll go at great lengths to say that because this verse says that every Christian should never be in debt to anyone, that means you should never be in debt in any kind of way, no matter what it is. Even monetarily, you shouldn't be in debt. After all, they say, it says, owe nothing to anyone. And quite possibly, that would be the case if Paul had finished his sentence at that word, right there in the sentence, anyone. Owe nothing to anyone, period. That might be the case, and that might be great argumentation for the validity of that kind of thought. Even though... Those who Paul was writing in the ancient times never were in a position to have some kind of self-imposed monetary debt. In other words, they, they, they wouldn't have been taking out monetary loans anyway. They might be in debt to some authority because of some unscrupulous practice against them in which they were in some kind of debt to someone, but no one really had the means to take any monetary debt voluntarily. But even with all that said, Paul didn't stop his sentence with just that. In fact, Paul clarified it by actually saying that as Christians, we already are in debt to all people. We're already in debt to all people. It's a debt of love that never goes away. And so when we look at Romans chapter 13, particularly verse 8, we, we don't need to be confused because Paul is not saying that it is wrong or ungodly to have monetary debt. It's not what he's saying. A legal loan correctly arranged is not sinful. Let's be clear on that. It's not sinful. As long as you faithfully live by the terms of the agreement, you're not neglecting other spiritual commands in order to do that. It's not sinful. And so I believe what Paul just intends by his words here in verse 8 is that we are to be ultra-careful in our relationships with others. Ultra-careful. So that if you owe anything to anyone, doesn't matter what you borrow, if it's a borrowed item, doesn't matter if it's a monetary sum, that you are faithful to return whatever it is to the other as agreed. Why? Because to not do so will hinder your testimony. To not do so with your own Christian brothers and sisters in Christ, you borrow something, but you don't give it back, it's going to hinder your relationship. It's going to hinder the relationship between the two of you constantly because you're going to be constantly thinking about it when you're with them. You're going to be constantly thinking about what you owe instead of what you should be giving them, which is love. So if you owe someone something, each and every time you see that person, the only thing on your mind is what you owe them. I don't know. It could be something simple. Maybe you borrowed a shovel last year. You didn't give it back. Some of you are nodding your heads. Hmm. I do have that shovel in my 
my thing, I probably should give that back. Right? You haven't returned it. So every time you see that person, you think about that shovel. Listen, just give it back. Just go get it out of the shed and give it back. It's that easy. Don't be like the world. That's what the world does. The world takes and never returns. Don't be like that. It's a bad witness. It's a bad witness to the world as Christians when we do like they do. Don't treat each other like that. We're different, right? We have an obligation to every person to ensure that we fulfill our side of the bargain. So what Paul is saying to us here is that as Christians, is that while we are not to owe anything to anyone, in other words, be faithful to discharge your side of the bargain, your obligation, he is also saying that we are actually in debt to all people. We are indebted with this debt of love. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. And when you think about the Apostle Paul's life, this is exactly how the Apostle Paul thought about his own conversion, how he thought about his own Christianity. What God had done with the Apostle Paul was so great to him that he saw it as a debt to other people. What God had done with Paul by way of his own conversion and salvation, he saw it in his own life as if it was a debt to others. He owed it to others, in other words. He owed it to them to tell them about Christ and the salvation that could be found in Christ. He owed it to them. It was a debt he had to them. That is simply to say that the effect of salvation upon the Apostle Paul was so great, so powerful in his life, that when he saw the need in someone else, he felt that he had to go and tell them about it. He had to. He couldn't withhold it from them. To him, they had a viable claim on him. That's why he preached. In fact, go back for a moment to the first chapter of Romans. This is exactly why Paul preached the gospel. Notice what he's, what's he say in chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. He says, I'm under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Thus, for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. You want to know something curious? That word, I am under obligation, the the Greek word there is the same word used in chapter 13, verse 7 and 8. The word for do and the word for owe. I owe it to them. I have a debt to Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and the foolish. That's why I preach. I have a debt to you, Roman believers, and I'm coming and I want to preach to you. Well, he says in verse 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because I know that's the only thing that's going to change you. It's the only thing that's going to cause you to be different. I owe it to you. I was reading this week uh, an illustration of this. And I, I want to give this to us because I think it might help us fully get grasped and understand what's being said here when he says that he was obligated or that he was a debtor. Think of the term or the word prescription. Think of that term, prescription. A person discovered several years ago a document from the first century in which 
There was a translation of Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Verse 16 says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew to the Greek. And they translated the word power with the word prescription. Prescription. For the gospel is the prescription of God unto salvation for all who believe. Now think about that idea in the mind of the Apostle Paul. If that was on the mind of the Apostle Paul, he's saying that that is how he feels as a Christian. That's how he feels as as a new believer in Christ or as a believer in Christ. I feel like a person who was suffering from a debilitating disease, something I could never escape, something I could never get away from, something that caused me great pain in my life continuously, something that caused me to continually remain isolated and inside. I didn't want to go outside. I was painful all the time. For years, I tried to find a cure. I went to doctor after doctor after doctor, and all to no avail. And one day, somebody told me of a person in another town who knew he could help me. So I went to that person. I told him my struggle. I told him my problem. That person assured me he could help me, and he gave me the prescription. And I followed the prescription. I followed the words that he told me. I followed the prescription, and ever since then, I've been well. Ever since then, the pain is gone, the suffering is gone, the disease is gone. The prescription was the power from the physician that made me well. So one day... After becoming well, I was walking along the road. Looked on the other side of the road, and there was a man hunched over in pain, suffering from a debilitating disease, and I immediately knew what would help him. I don't know that man. He doesn't know me. He's a stranger to me. But I know that this man has never heard of this prescription because had he heard of this prescription, he wouldn't be like that. I know I had the cure to this man's problem in my pocket. So what does Paul do? Paul senses a debt to that man. He goes to the man. He doesn't wait for the man to come to him. He crosses the road. He says to the man, excuse me, sir, you don't know me. I don't know you, but I do know what's going on with you. Have you ever heard of this? He gives him the prescription. See, I think we're all intelligent people. We understand the illustration, don't we? We understand it. Paul has the cure. Paul has to go to the man. Paul has to reach out to that person. In fact, the man has a right to hear the prescription. Paul is indebted to the man. He doesn't know him. He's never seen the man. But he's indebted to him. Why? Because he knows of the cure. So he feels the pressure in himself to go, to go and give it. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 13. This is the idea the, the, the implicational idea behind his words. 
We have a debt of love to every person. So what Paul is saying here in chapter 13 and verse 8 is that we are to ensure that we are faithful to discharge anything we might owe to anyone. Make sure you don't owe anyone anything and remember that we are in spiritual debt to all people. There's one debt that we will never be able, this side of heaven, to get rid of fully. And that's the debt and the fact that we have a debt of love for other people. In other words, loving other people is a perpetual obligation. Not something we can choose one day to do and the next day not to do. This is something we have to be doing all the time. We Christians have to remember that we are debtors to all people when it comes to loving one another. Why? Because loving one another is fulfilling the whole law. You see what it says here in verse 8? For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. It's incredible to me. It's incredible to me as I look at my own life and I think about Christianity that within Christian circles, oftentimes we hear of separating law and love. You ever hear about that in the church? We're not under law. And there's a sense in which that's true. Paul's even said it in this very book. We're not under law, we're under grace. But Paul didn't mean a separation between law and love. He didn't mean a separation at all. We don't live by the law, people say. We just live by love. As if to say that law and love are mutually exclusive entities within Scripture. That can't be further from the case. In fact, they are so linked that when we love one another rightly, Paul says, we are fulfilling the law as it was meant to be. In other words, they're so linked together that you can never separate law and love. You can't separate them. And so we can rightly say that all of this teaching about submission to the governing authorities and rendering to all what we owe is part of God's law. Part of God's law to his people. In other words, this is God's law for life. This is God's law for us as Christians. This is how God wants us to live in our relationship to one another. This is law. I remember years ago when I was preaching in Ohio, I was pastoring out there. I had a sweet man who used to come up to me from time to time and say, Pastor, where's the grace? Where's the grace? The weight of conviction was on him constantly in his own heart, in his life. And sometimes that happens with us here. We, we think, where's the grace? Brothers and sisters, it's all grace. It's all grace. We stand in grace, the Bible said. This is all grace. Conviction is grace. It's the grace of God. So this isn't a matter of personal opinion as to whether we ought to do this or not. We read this and we go, yeah, okay, well, maybe I will, maybe I won't. No, this isn't a matter of our opinion. This is God's law. This is God's law, and to resist His law is to resist Him. This is God's commandment to us. If we love God, we what? 
Keep his commandments. That's what it says. Even when, and especially when, they're overriding and contradicting our own opinion about submission. Listen, we just don't obey because we agree with it. We obey even when our flesh doesn't want to agree with it, even when it's hard. We do what God says. You say, well, why are you saying that here? Because that's what verse 8 is implying. Owe nothing to anyone except love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And Paul expands it in verses 9 and 10. Notice what he says, for this, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it's summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. It's like a bookend. You got verse 8, you got verse 10, they bookended all together. What is Paul doing? Paul is simply summarizing what Jesus said in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount that I read this morning. Paul's just summarizing it. The Pharisees, Jesus is preaching to the crowd and the Pharisees are there. The Pharisees were only concerned with the letter of the law. Make sure you're not a murderer. Make sure you're not an adulterer. Make sure you do those things, whatever it was. Make sure you keep the letter of law. But Jesus says, listen, you miss the spirit of the law. That's why Jesus said, you have heard the ancients were told this, but I say to you, the ancients were told this, but I say to you in Matthew chapter 5, that's why he says all of that. Murder was just the outworking of hate in the heart. You could say, well, I've never murdered someone, but do you have hate in your heart? Adultery was just the outworking of lust in the heart. And so Paul says here in Romans chapter 13, owe nothing to anyone except, owe nothing to anyone, that's the letter, that's the letter of the law. Take care of your obligations, the outward obligations, that's the details. But he continues and says, love one another, that's the spirit of the law. Why? Because love is the fulfillment of the law when you rightly understand it. It's not just the outwardness. So we can never find ourselves caught in that trap of duty. It's easy to get caught in this trap of Christian duty. Oh, I'm doing my duty. That's not what it is. Duty without love is just the letter of the law. That's all it is. Oh, I go to church. Sunday, I go to church. That's duty. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter kills. What does that mean? What does that mean for us? What does it mean for us here in Romans chapter 13, 12, 13, and, and as we go on in 14, 15, and 16? What's it, what's it mean? Well, it means that we need to remember that submission or obedience to God and to his law is never robotic. It is never mechanical. 
Doing what God commands is never something that is to be rote, just just mechanical and robotic. We're, we're not to go about thinking that if I do this and do this and do this, if I check all the boxes, then I'm obeying God. We're not to go around like that. No, anybody can do that. That's just living like a robot. No, we're to be thoughtful. We're to think about it. Our service, as Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it's a spiritual service of worship. It's a thoughtful, rational service of worship. That's the really the idea behind that word spiritual. It's a rational service of worship. It's a thoughtful service of worship. It's not just rote. We don't go and turn on and turn off our robotic actions. No, we think it through. We live by the Spirit of the law. We live by the Spirit. So obedience to God's commands is not some list of things that we do. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. You've heard that from people who object Christianity. Well, I don't want to become a Christian. I mean, then I got to give up all this stuff. It's just this do's, do this, do this, do this, don't do this. No, that's, that's robotic. That's, that's not Christianity. That's not Christianity at all. In fact, that, that, that gets people more lost because they think they're okay. No, it's not that. No, Christianity has a very personal reality to it. It shows in our living. We interact with it. Adultery isn't simply an act. Adultery is a matter of the heart. The act is just the outworking of it. That's all. Murder is not just an act. It's a heart issue. None of us may have actually killed any other person physically here. We could all probably say, I'm not a murderer at least not by that definition, but all of us have hated somebody else. You ever hated anybody? Sure you have. According to the law of God, not only have you murdered, but you've actually showed that you were a murderer by not loving your neighbor as yourself. Not loving our neighbor as ourselves shows that we do not love God with our whole heart, with our whole mind, and with all of our strength, which comes before ever loving your neighbor as yourself. That's why Paul gives those commands here in verse 9. He's not trying to give a litany of all the commands of God because they began before that with, you shall have no other God before me. In other words, without a love for God, with your whole heart, whole mind, whole strength, you're never going to love your neighbor as yourself. You're never going to want to do that. You're never going to be able to do that. This is why loving your neighbor as yourself is a fulfillment of the law, because it recognizes both sides of that equation. It recognizes the reality that I'll never love somebody unless I'm, I'm in this right relationship with God myself. It's a heart issue. In fact, that is exactly what Jesus is implying to the lawyer who came to him in Luke 10 and asked, what must I do to be saved? Jesus says, what does the law say? What's the law say? He says, well, it says you shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, and strength. Jesus says, true, you've answered rightly. He said, what else does it say? He said, love your neighbors yourself. He says, exactly. 
Now go and do that. Men knew he wasn't going to do that. That's why you read about the Good Samaritan there. The Good Samaritan passage in Luke chapter 10 is all an illustration of that very conversation that starts in verse 25 of that chapter. If you want to be saved through the law, then you better be perfect in that way, in every detail, in every aspect. And no one can do that because we're already sinners by birth. That's why the man asked, well, who's my neighbor then? Jesus gave the illustration that we call the illustration that we call the Good Samaritan. You see, when you love your neighbor, you care for them. When you love your neighbor, you'll not commit adultery. When you love your neighbor, you'll consider their life as being valuable. You won't take it. When you love your neighbor, when you love each other, you'll respect their property. You won't abuse it. You won't take and never return. How we love our neighbor is a clear picture of how we love God. It's a clear picture of the gospel. Sure, it's easy for us to say that we love God. That's easy. A lot of people say, oh, I have a relationship with God. A lot of people say, I love God. Oh, there's people going, people sitting in places today, houses of worship, and they all say they love God. It's easy for us to say that we have faith, that we believe. That's easy. It's easy for us to say that we believe in the sovereignty of God, isn't it? I mean, we talk about it even now in light of the circumstances of life in which we are living. We talk about the sovereignty of God. It's on our mind. But then what happens when we have to live it out? What happens when the sovereignty of God, when loving your neighbor meets you right there face to face? Now you got to live it out. Now you got to actually do it. We can't simply say that we love our neighbors and then not do something. can't simply say that we have faith and have no works. Right? We can't simply say that we believe God is sovereign and then not trust Him when circumstances demand that we trust Him. We just can't say God's a sovereign God and then when circumstances come about, we run around like my father used to tell me, like chickens with our heads cut off. No. No one will be fooled when our words are worthless. If our lives don't show it, they're not going to be fooled. Listen, we live in a cold and uncaring world, don't we? I mean, it's a cold, uncaring world. You don't think so? Just look at some of the, the, the news clips of what people are doing in grocery stores just to get a piece of toilet paper. We Christians can't be like that. To love our neighbors as ourself is to love them unlike the world loves them. The world loves us with sentimentality. It's all about feeling. It's all about emotion. That's, that's love in the world. It's, it's just this word It's born out of a base lust of selfishness. That's what it's born out of. What can I get from it? 
But that's not the love that Paul's talking about. That's not loving your neighbor as yourself. That's, that's not that. This is a love that is one which self-sacrifices. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. That means I got to take on. That means I got to absorb. That means I got to be selfless. This is the love of Christ for us. This is what Christ has done for us. This is the love that men and women by nature do not know how to do. They cannot. When people talk today about loving others, and they don't have a concept of what it means to love God with your whole heart, mind, and soul first, it's not Christian love they're talking about. It's not Christian love. Christian love speaks truth to one another. Even when it hurts to do that. Christian love prays for those who persecute you. Even when you don't care too much in your flesh for that person. Christian love leaves its comfort zone. So that that friend, that neighbor, that co-worker might hear the life giving truth of the gospel. Because you have the prescription to their sin disease that's debilitating their life. Christian love does whatever it needs to to adorn the gospel. Why? Because Christian love loves God with its whole heart, mind, soul, and strength first. And then, and then it can rightly love its neighbor as itself. Paul says Christian love does no wrong to a neighbor. No wrong to a neighbor. Even when that means submit. Submit. That's why Paul could say Christian love is a fulfillment. The fulfillment of the law. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Think about it. How irresistible. Think about how irresistible Christianity would be in the world if we Christians would actually love our neighbors as ourselves. Think about that. How irresistible it would be. If we would constantly see ourselves as love debtors, love debtors to all men, I wonder, I wonder if the gospel would be the new pandemic in our world. If we just loved one another as we are. Paul says we've been shown unfathomable mercy unfathomable mercy and grace. Let us as Christians, especially now, let us fulfill the law of love. Let us love God as we ought and love one another as we are commanded. Let's pray together. Father, certainly we could spend a year of Sundays on just this very principle.
and never exhaust your mind and the implications of your truth in our very lives. We would never uncover every detail of what your heart desires for us and how we are to live in a world so lost. Father, I pray that we would simply take this truth to heart, each one of us, that when we see our co-workers, our family, our friends, people in the store, they're in the line ahead of us, behind us, whoever it may be, Lord, that we see ourselves indebted to them with the gospel, that we would indeed take and go outside of what our flesh might feel like a comfort zone, maybe where we have sinfully allowed ourselves to to create a little cocoon for ourselves and justified it. We would go outside of that, honoring your name, loving you more than we love self, and pay to them what we owe them. Give them the gospel. They may reject it. That's up to you. We don't know. But they certainly deserve to hear it from us. May they not only hear it in our life as they watch us, but may they hear it in our words as we speak. And may they know that we are your disciples by how we love one another. All to your glory. Thank you for this time, these circumstances we are in, that we can think of these things in a greater and more profound way than maybe we have thought before. May we honor your name as we live them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.